God reigns. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, uh, worshipers, for leading us in time of, of singing to the Lord a joyful song, of declaring that God is indeed King and He reigns. Well, we continue today our study through the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon <clears throat> preached by Jesus Himself in which He tells us how to live on earth, the kingdom of heaven. This is our fifth sermon in the series, and so far we looked at an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, then we looked at the values and witnesses of the kingdom, then we looked at the relationship of the kingdom to the Old Testament, and then last week we looked at the first three demands of the kingdom regarding murder, adultery, and divorce. And today we will look at three more demands of the kingdom. Before we identify them, I want to remind all of us uh, of the two purposes that these demands fulfill. On one hand, the demands of the kingdom are examples of the truthfulness of what God revealed in the Old Testament. Remember how we said at the beginning of the sermon series that Jesus had a very, very high view of the Old Testament. Because in His eyes and in ours as well, it should be, the Old Testament is part of what God had revealed to us. Now, on the other side, on the other hand, these demands tell us how the citizens of God's kingdom are called to display the reign of God in their life on earth. This is the second purpose of, of the demands of the kingdom. They're, they're there to display, to call us to display the reign of God in our lives on earth. And my dear friend, if you are a Christian, I want to remind you that to call yourself a Christian means that you have repented of your sin and rebellion, that you have trusted in Christ to be saved from the wrath of God, and thus your status has been changed before God, from being an enemy of God to becoming a child of God through the new birth. And your repentance and, and faith were made public through baptism, which is a symbol of your death and resurrection to a new life. Now, that change of status and that change of nature means that you change your allegiance from self-interests, from serving worthless idols, from being a servant of sin. You change your allegiance to becoming now a servant of the Most High God and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven even while living on earth. That's what it means to be a Christian. A change of nature. A change of status. And ultimately, a change of allegiance. And the question comes, if God is our king, how do we show that in our daily living? How do we display the reign of God in our lives? By using a religious language in our vocabulary? By hanging out with Christians one day a week? How exactly do we show the reign of God in our lives? As important as that question might be, it is not the most important question. 
the more important question for us is how does God want us to display His reign in our lives? You see, the Pharisees thought they were displaying the reign of God in their lives, but when Jesus came on the scene, He had a lot of correcting to do of what the Pharisees have wrongly taught the people of God. And I wonder today what the Son of God would want to correct in our impressions about how to display the reign of God. What would He want to correct in our lives personally? What would He want to correct in our lives corporately as a church? Now last week, we looked at how Jesus corrected people's impressions about murder, adultery, and divorce. And today we would look at at how Jesus corrected people's impressions about oaths, about retaliation, and about love. And encourage you to open Scripture to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 48. If you're a visitor this morning, you may find this passage in the Bibles that are provided for you in the chair in front of you by turning to page 839. 839 in the Bibles provided for you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 48. Here's the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be Yes, and your no, no. Anything that comes beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, 
Because your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Let's bow in, in, in prayer. Father, we pray that you would send the spirit of truth to guide our minds as we open the scriptures. Father, I pray that you would take these words of mine and use them so that we may understand your truth which sanctifies us. Father, I pray these things in the name of Jesus for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, in every sermon in the series, I have been saying the following caution. And for the sake of our first-time visitors today, I will repeat it again. And I'll repeat every Sunday in the series. The demands of the kingdom of heaven do not tell us how to get to heaven. But how would they instruct us, they instruct those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how to live our lives here on earth. Now with, with this caution, I would like for us to look at the, the final three demands that, that Jesus presents, the demands of the kingdom of heaven. The first one is beginning on verse 33 all the way to verse 37, on oaths. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that he was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. And Jesus goes on and gives a few examples of, of oaths that we should not make. Now, the reality is for none of us today, we're not in a position to make these specific oaths. So in what way are Jesus' teachings relevant and applicable for us? This fourth demand can easily be, be misunderstood if we don't read it in the context. The command Jesus refers to, um, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23 and from the book of Numbers chapter 30. We will not look at those passages this morning. And some have taken it to mean that Jesus here is, is giving an absolute prohibition against taking any kind of oath, even in a court setting. However, we have to understand what Jesus is doing here, what exactly he's correcting. He's not saying we should never swear. If we read carefully through the rest of the Bible, we read that Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, I call God as my witness that, I was, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. God, I mean, Paul seems to call on God as a witness. Likewise, the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that God himself made oaths. Hebrews 6, 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it by an oath. So if we read these examples of of the apostles and even God who occasionally would make oaths, then we have to ask, what is Jesus teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus is correcting the abuse of the Pharisees regarding oaths. The Pharisees devised a, a very elaborate system where some oaths were permissible to break while others were not. An example of, of this elaborate system of oaths uh, may be found in, in Matthew chapter 23. Verse 16 through 18, Jesus says, 
and he's in a dispute directly with the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, and here's what, what the Pharisees taught the people, If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. And Jesus says, You fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And Jesus goes on to give a few more examples of how the Pharisees devised a way that certain oaths were not biting and therefore allowed people to break them and allowed them to, to get out of them even while they were presenting themselves as, as, as speaking the truth. In a similar way, in Matthew 5, Jesus gives examples of some of the oaths people used to take. Look at verses 34 and to 36. Jesus says, But I tell you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, a wonderful language of the kingdom of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And look at the alternative to using oaths. Jesus says in verse 37, Simply let your yes be yes. And your no? No. Just like in the previous three scenarios of murder, adultery, and divorce, Jesus had to correct and remind them of God's initial intentions. So now in the scenario of making oaths, Jesus reminds them of what God was really concerned about. Not so much about oaths. What God was most concerned about was the issue of truthfulness of being committed to speaking the truth at all times, of not hiding behind language with double meaning and behind oaths that allowed us a way out. And look at the reason for this correction, verse 37, the second half of the verse. Here's what Jesus says. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, anything beyond saying yes, yes, and meaning no, no, anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Now, the, the, the phrase the evil one is a reference to Satan. Elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, he is described as the father of lies. If you turn to Matthew 8, uh, to John 8, chapter 8, verse 44, uh, Jesus is in a major dispute, again with the Pharisees. And here's what Jesus tells these Pharisees and about Satan. You, Pharisees, belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not, with, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks his native language. What a beautiful picture. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Remember the Garden of Eden? 
The reason why we need to be committed to speaking the truth in all circumstances, it is because by doing so, we display who really, who truly is our Father. Well, friends, it is not uncommon that there are many Christians who still struggle with the notion of speaking the truth. Some may fall into lying because of habit for no reason at all. For things that don't matter at all, they just, they just say it. Others lie in order to cover up something wrong or something they fail to do. And those who, who are in the latter category use lying so it will not cost them their reputation or their jobs or even their relationships. They tend to think, they. Why do I say they? We. We tend to think that lying is a way out of a mess. But friends, dear brothers and sisters, the cost of lying is greater than the cost of saying the truth, even though at first it may not seem so. And if we look and consider carefully, there, there is an immediate cost and a long-term cost to lying. The immediate cost of not speaking the truth is that when we lie, we promote the business of God's enemy, even while, even though we are citizens of God's kingdom. Friends, when we engage in misrepresenting the truth, we are telling God that in a particular situation, in a particular circumstance, Satan has a better plan to get us out of the mess we're in. And this is such a slap to God's face. We who claim to be his servants, citizens of God's kingdom, and, and servants of the great king, would actually continue to use the old tricks promoted by the enemy of God. So when we misrepresent the truth, not only do we insult God, but we are also doing bad publicity to God's reign. Just think for a moment how many relationships have been broken because people lied to one another. How many friendships or even marriages have been damaged because lying destroyed the trust between two spouses or two friends? And how difficult and how long it takes to regain that trust back. And what's worse is that these realities are experienced even by Christians who claim to live under the reign of God. Do you see how bad a reputation we give to the reign of God when we ourselves engage in misrepresenting the truth? Friends, Scripture is so clear about the danger and the cost of being a liar that in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22, it says, It is better to be a poor man than to be a liar. Now let that comparison sink into our materialistic minds. What if we hated lying more than poverty? What if we sought to run away from lying with the same zeal as we seek to stay away from falling into poverty? What would that do to our lives? What would that do to the reign of God 
and his reputation in the world. Now, there's also a long-term cost for being a liar, for lying. Revelation 21, 8, we read the following, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Friends, what's shocking is to hear that God would put liars in the same category with murderers and immoral people. No wonder that Jesus treats these subjects together on the Sermon on the Mount about murder and then about lying. Often people feel good about themselves because they have not killed anyone or because they have not committed adultery. But ask them if they have ever lied. How come that in our moral system, even for us Christians, lying doesn't seem to be that big of a violation? We treat it more like a parking ticket. We know it's not right. But when we are really in a tight spot, we don't think that the fine is so big. So we're going to risk taking it and think that it's worth paying the fine. Friends, God has a different picture about misrepresenting the truth. And the demands of the kingdom are that we would speak the truth from the bottom of our hearts. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything that comes beyond this comes from the evil one. Friends, when we engage in speaking on truth, there are both immediate costs and long-term costs. There are costs that affect us personally, and there are costs that affect the kingdom of God because we misrepresent it. And that's why the commitment to always speak the truth is a big characteristic of those in whom the reign of God is active. That's the first correction that Jesus makes in our passage. It is really the fourth correction in the Sermon on the Mount. Now look, let's look on the fifth correction that Jesus makes. The fifth scenario in the Sermon on the Mount is about the law of retaliation, verses 38 to 42. Look at how Jesus begins this scenario. You have heard that he was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Among, again, these words have the potential to be misunderstood if we don't recount the original intent of the Old Testament laws for, re for retaliation. You see, friends, when God gave the laws of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, He did not give out these laws in order to encourage retaliation. He gave those laws in order to restrict retaliation. You say, how come? Well, very easily. Imagine if, if someone um, did something evil to his neighbor. It was very easy for, his neighbor, for the neighbor to get back at, at his friend by doing a greater damage than the initial damage. And therefore, the, the evil and the violence would escalate very rapidly. So God gave rules of what to do when someone abuses you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But we have to remember... 
these laws were given not to people individually, but they were given to the nation as a whole, as a whole and specifically to its judges so that the nation would have a, a system of justice. These laws were not given so that people, individual people, would, would go out and, and, and engage in personal retaliation. But of course, just like in the other scenarios, the people started misunderstanding the intention behind these laws, and very quickly, very quickly, they began thinking and being consumed with how far their personal retaliation could extend without breaking the law of God. And Jesus corrects this impression by saying, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now by saying this, Jesus is not suspending the justice system which a state ought to have. Jesus gives three hypothetical examples. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, and thirdly, if someone forces you to go one mile. In each of these examples, the offense is personal, and Jesus teaches how we should respond as individuals. The correction Jesus makes is that our individual attitudes should be guided by a readiness to be insulted rather than seeking personal retaliation. Jesus does not mean that the, stat the state should not do its job to maintain justice and peace. Jesus is not saying that Christians should not work in offices that maintain justice and peace. What Jesus is simply addressing and saying is that our desires for personal retaliation should be suspended. After Jesus gave these examples, he concludes with another command, which at first seems to be unconnected to the previous uh, examples. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, this command may be misun misunderstood to imply that we should give to anyone without any discernment of the cause or of the need. But the point Jesus is making is by this command is that Again, it must be understood in the context of what he said earlier, the principle that he's teaching, namely that we should not be guided by an attitude that is constantly demanding our personal rights. As followers of Christ, we have no more personal rights. We do not have the right to vengeance and we do not have the right to our possessions. Dear friends, a very high view of personal rights, which by the way, is highly worshipped in our culture, a very high view of personal rights is foreign to the mindset of those who surrender their lives to Christ, to those who picked up their cross to follow their Savior. When we are abused, it does not mean that the state should not carry out justice. But it does mean that we should not react out of anger to redeem our personal rights. Instead, we should act out of the self-sacrificial lifestyle of the cross and thus display the reign of God in our lives. That's a fifth demand of the kingdom. No more personal rights. I know there will be, be a lot of questions on that topic. 
And the finally, the, the last scenario Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' impression and correction of people's impressions of what it means to love. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let me pause there for a second. It is true that the Old Testament said, love your neighbor. But if you look at the Old Testament, nowhere will you find the phrase, and hate your enemy. This was one of those examples. Again, the, the Israelites, the Pharisees, began misinterpreting the Old Testament and adding certain things that would favor them and, and make them feel good. Love your neighbors, but hate your enemy. The Israelites in Jesus' day were consumed with the question of who is my neighbor? It's like the issue of, you know, today we're consumed with the question of, you know, Calvinism, you know? There are certain issues every generation is consumed about. In Jesus' day, the question they were consumed with was, who is my neighbor? And do you remember how Jesus responds to that question? He gives a parable of the Good Samaritan. In other words, Jesus is saying our neighbors are all those who encounter and are able to help. But notice how Jesus corrects this misunderstanding in the lives and in the impression of, of the Israelites. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now it's amazing how Jesus combines the command to love our enemies and the command to pray for those who persecute us. And he, he combines that, he brings these two commands after he talked about not retaliating. You, you have to see these two scenarios together, scenario five and scenario six. There's a sense in which these do go together. In other words, Jesus is saying instead of retaliating, instead of seeking out our personal rights, we're called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And notice why Jesus gives this command. He says, in loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, we are sons of our Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, by doing so, we show that we are God's children. Now, here's a question. Why would love for enemies be a display that we are children of God? Because when God loved us, we were his enemies. And that's how Paul describes our state of sinful rebellion in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Even though humanity was created perfect by God, the disobedience of Adam and Eve made all of us enemies of God. That's how we are born into this world. And yet... God still loved us even while we were his enemies. And do you remember how God showed us his love? By giving us his son for us to die on the cross. On the cross, God's justice and love were most clearly displayed. So now Jesus says that we show that we are sons of God when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because that's how God's love was displayed when he loved 
us his enemies. And the command which Jesus gave to his disciples was a command that he himself lived out on the cross while suffering the greatest injustice and while he was, he was enduring the greatest of human sufferings, he cried, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is a grand distinction of divine love, of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And in doing so, this is the greatest distinction of, of divine love, not simply in how we love, but who we love. And Jesus says in verse 46 and 47, a rebuke to the Pharisees and a rebuke to what the Pharisees have been teaching, a rebuke to his disciples. If we love only those who love us back, how is, it that, how is that love different than the world's love? It's no different at all because the ultimate distinction of divine love and worldly love is on who it can love. It's a love that can look beyond personal abuse, beyond even persecution, and see the other person as object of God's love. Friends, when we love in that way, it won't make the suffering go away. The effects of personal abuse are still going to be there. But we have a choice to make. To look at our enemies from the perspective of, of our personal rights or to look at them with the same value as God looked at us while we were His enemies. So in this final example, in this final scenario, Jesus corrects people's good impressions about being loving. They thought they were loving, just like so many of us do. And Jesus says, if we love only those who love us, how are we different than tax collectors or than pagans? Something more is demanded. A love that distinguishes itself as divine by loving even our enemies. And Jesus ends the scenario with, with a, a final demand, a demand that in a way, it's not just for the final scenario, but, but puts a, a final touch to everything Jesus said in the six demands that he, he, he expounded, which we looked at last week and today. Look at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we ought to imitate God not only in His love for our enemies uh, and for, for His enemies, but we also ought to imitate God in His perfection. Now I wonder how many of us wish Jesus would have not included the sentence in the sermon. For some of us this morning, this concluding demand seems foreign to the lips of Jesus because for many today, Jesus has a very soft view. Or Jesus, they have a very soft view of, of Christ. But Jesus here makes an unmistakable claim that God's demands in the Old Testament for holiness continue in the New Testament, and they continue to stand today. The kingdom of heaven, dear friends, demands holiness. Actually, the grace of God demands holiness. The Apostle Paul says in Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say, 
no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. Friends, the grace of God has been displayed in the cross of Christ. And Titus goes on to describe Christ as the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Friends, the new nature that God gave us when we turn to him in repentance and faith with a new nature that God gave us through the new birth, it's God's nature. And therefore, it will call, it will yearn for, your, for holiness. And that's why, that's what distinguishes the new nature from the old nature. Let me say this morning, dear friend, if Jesus' demand for perfection does not seem to fit well with your desires, realize that it is your old nature that responds in this way. And when we observe that our old nature is stronger in our lives than, than the new nature that God has given to us, we need to confess that to God and ask Him to give us the strength the inner, in our inner being to yearn for, for holiness and for God's perfection. Paul prays for the believers in, in, in Ephesus, and he says, I pray that our, out of His glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his inner, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Friends, as children of God, our lives should be characterized by the desire to grow in God's perfection, by the desire to grow in holiness. Our prayers should be characterized by this desire. Yes, we may never reach it to its fullness, but we should yearn for it. Friends, the greatest difference between people is not between those who are holy and those who are not, but between those who desire to grow in holiness and those who do not. And I wonder this morning in which category you find yourself. In just a few moments, we will commemorate and remember the death of Christ on our behalf. If you're a Christian and you realize that the demands of the kingdom of heaven are not really characterizing your life right now, your life today, my friend, I want to remind you based on the authority of God's word that the grace of God teaches us to put an end to all ungodliness. And if you realize that, you may repent today of your sinful living. And if so, if you're willing to repent you are invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or if you have not publicly professed your repentance and faith through baptism, I hope that you would consider to turn to God and show your decision publicly by requesting to be baptized. And after you have made these two steps, you will be considered publicly a citizen of God's kingdom, and therefore you are invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. But until then, my dear friend, we pray that you would make these two steps. Turn to God and show that turn to God in repentance and faith through baptism. In the next few moments, dear friends, let's take a few more minutes and meditate on our lives and meditate on what Christ has taught his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's examine ourselves and prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. We'll do that by having a few moments of, of silence, of prayer. Then I'll pray, and after the prayer, we'll have a, a, a hymn that will lead us into our time of 
preparing for the Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads and meditate and examine ourselves before the Lord. Father, we acknowledge you as a holy God, perfect in all your attributes. And Father, we acknowledge and recognize that we understand that your demand for us is that we would be perfect. And yet, Father, we acknowledge that there's no way perfection lives in us. From our birth to the moment we die, we will live with imperfection in this world. But Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who lived that perfect life for us. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and yet he died on the cross in order to bring us your perfection. And Father, we, the only reason we can stand before you as a holy God, as a perfect God, is by trusting in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Lord, we pray, don't look at us, look at Christ. And Lord, as you look at Christ, we also look at Christ and ask that, that the perfection he brought to us would become a daily experience, a growing experience in our daily lives. Father, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord, I pray that you work in us a spirit of repentance, a spirit of confession. And Lord, we come with cleansed hearts, with purified hearts, not because of us, but because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. <laughs>